You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. We have two really special guests that worked on the new film, Trolls World Tour. Our guests are Jesse Pariseau and Paul Hackner. Uh, the film came out a few weeks ago. I was really excited for this film. The previous Trolls film was one of my kids' favorite movies. So when we told them that Trolls 2 was coming out, we were super excited. We were going to all go to the theater on opening night and then the world went upside down. But luckily, Trolls 2, uh, Trolls World Tour decided to release on uh, straight to video, video on demand. So we made it a big thing the whole week leading up to the Friday that it was released. Okay, this Friday we're going to watch Trolls World Tour. This Friday we watched the trailer like every day. And on the morning that it came out, my daughter came running into our bedroom and went, It's Trolls Day! She was so excited about it. So we uh, made homemade pizza, got the popcorn going, sat down, put it on, and the movie lived up to the hype. My kids loved it. I loved it too. It's a really cool movie because it tells a story about inclusivity uh, through the plot device of music and how it can both divide people and bring people together. So the entire plot is built around the soundtrack, making sound super important in the film. So let's meet who we're going to be talking to today. Jesse Pariseau served as sound effects editor and supervising Foley editor on Trolls World Tour. Her many previous film credits include Missing Link, Crazy Rich Asians, Ghost in the Shell, as well as some awesome game credits as a dialogue editor on Uncharted 4, Call of Duty Black Ops 3, and Star Wars Night of the Fallen Empire. Wow. Welcome to the broadcast, Jesse. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. <laughs> awesome. So also joining us is Paul Hackner. Paul was the re-recording mixer and supervising sound editor on Trolls World Tour. Paul has some credits on some all-time films like The Revenant, Selma, Hunger Games, and lots, lots more. Great to have you aboard, Paul. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So neither of you worked on Trolls 1, right? The original? No, did not. So how did you go about getting that world to continue? Did you get a library from the previous crew, or did you just build everything from scratch yourself? So when we started Trolls... Um, I, I was lucky enough to be brought in for a period of pre-design when they were doing initial animation. And in that process and in the process of interviewing for the project, the director really said that he wants to do something different with this project. So there was a certain amount of desire to have continuity from Trolls 1 to Trolls 2. But um, on the other hand, they wanted to step it up a notch and they really did. Um, Another thing interesting about the director of Trolls 2, even though he didn't direct the first film, he was one of the stars. So our, one of our favorite characters like Cloud Guy from Trolls 1 is the director. So we had the, the experience of actually working with the characters, you know, and we really were given a creative vision from Gina Shea, the producer, and the director and the co-director on, you know, how to create that world. Jesse, did you have anything to add to that? I think Paul covered it. I mean, I, we definitely, both of us watched the first one. I know I watched it several times to make sure we were keeping things consistent, especially in the Foley realm, because um, we wanted to keep it feeling like the same world, you know? 
So um, we both knew the first movie pretty well. So just one, and a t- on a technical note, we were able to uh, get the stems from the original trolls, and that gave us an opportunity to just solo the foley, for example, and really hear how they approached surfaces. And we could get you know pretty technical into that, but it was just the general philosophy was the surfaces represented what they were in the real world, not what they look like on screen. But there was no rule to that. So we, you know, stuck to that idea, but then we veered in many directions. That's actually something I wanted to talk to you about, that dichotomy between, because in the Trolls world, it's kind of like a scrapbook come to life and everything's made out of felt or made out of uh, plastic or something along those lines. But there are lots of moments in the film, for instance, uh, when the main character first gets the invitation from the bad guy, it's on visually a piece of denim. But what we're hearing in the Foley is paper. And there's lots of moments like that throughout the film. There's another moment where they're having a campfire and they throw a log on the fire. And the log visually is like a felt tube, but you hear a real piece of wood land on the fire. So, But there was other points where that didn't happen. Uh, when Chompy jump, comes out of the ground, it tears through fabric. So how did you decide when to play it real and when to play that uh, fabric-y type feel? We tried a few different ways, um, and it like the for instance the scroll that you brought up. We tried it with just paper, and then we like I also added in a layer of cloth and denim, and we kind of softened it out. So it was a weird blend between real and not real. But like most of the time, I felt, and I think Paul can probably agree, um, is if it was strictly real and it was too real, it didn't feel right. So we, it was it was a blend of everything for almost the whole time until it's one of those things where it's like that has to be just a, a rip, a cloth rip, you know, because to like punch through that fact that it's a quilt that he's coming through. So did you basically have to do twice as much Foley for everything, a realistic pass and then a felt pass? Some of the stuff we recorded at the same time, actually, so it gave it that feel already. Um, and other times we would record it one way and then we would either have to do pickups or I would just cut in something that we'd done in a different area or had, yeah, basically, yeah, we would do either twice the amount of work or we would do it all in the record pass. I mean, there's like sort of three different issues that came up. One was, first of all, it's a movie and it's a musical So we came into this with the desire and understanding that we have to feature the music in a special way because we really want to get the energy, you know, like that feeling of listening to a mixtape when you're a kid or whatever, you know, that super feeling how music transports you. And when we were doing Foley or sound effects or whatever, it had to complement and or cut through the music. So that was one criteria. And then then was the second criteria was just making sounds that helps tell the story, you know. So like Jesse said, um, Chomper's coming out and ripping, not only does that cut through the music, but it really gives that explosive effect that the, the directors were actually struggling to find. That was the Lonesome Flats chase scene was one of the hardest scenes because um, the directors were very sensitive about adding anything to that music because of something about the nature of a high-energy country song, as soon as you, a- you added rumbles or rips or um, even the vocals of Chompers too much, 
it just took away from that magic carpet ride kind of feeling that we were talking about. And the third thing was, you know, looking at the fabric or looking at the surface and whether the sound is going to be exciting being played realistic or not. So when they're on the raft in the river, it's about an adventure. And as much as we would love to have done something silky for that crazy animation of water that they did with like a sort of satin... (laughs) As much as we wanted to do that, we also had to think, oh, it needs to feel like water. And we had the same experience with creating sounds for a waterfall. At first, you know, I tried to do just a tinsel waterfall, and then we tried fully tinsel. But ultimately, you had to have real water in there. So I don't know. I guess it's about sort of the psychology of sound. I don't know. So you had to play it by ear, basically, What <laughs> figure out what worked for each yeah, moment. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that that makes it open up for a lot of creativity then. So that's probably pretty exciting when you get that realization. Yeah, this movie, at least in the Foley realm, was super fun to like. And we had wonderful Foley artists on it who were super creative and they had all kinds of ideas to try. And it, it was a lot of trial and error for things that worked and didn't work and cut through the music and didn't cut through. And it was a lot of a lot of creative fun on this one for sure. Who was the Foley team? When I was gearing up for this movie, it was a great opportunity for me, and I wanted to do something that worked for me. I wanted to have a great team, and I wanted to encourage creativity. One of the experiences I had with Foley was working on the movie Drive. It was working with a brand-new sound supervisor, two sound supervisors, and, and I'd never worked with them before, and I was put in a room with this amazing Foley. And I watched the movie, and I realized oh my God, this is going to be right in front on screen. So when I was working on Drive, that's when I worked first with Catherine Harper's Foley. So when I was going to do this work at Warner Brothers, and I knew she worked there, and I was super excited because, you know, I wanted to go back to that place of giving people creativity. That's a long answer. Our Foley team was Catherine Harper and Katie Rose, and... And Katie as well. I have a history, just like a fun history. I worked with her brother, and we were so lucky to have such an amazing team. So you mentioned earlier, Jesse, about having to have the Foley and I guess all sound effects pop through the music. The music was obviously all done in pre-production for the most part. Obviously, there's some score here and there, but the big musical moments you had when you were doing the Foley, which is somewhat unusual for a lot of projects, the music's happening at the same time as the Foley. Uh, So... How much did you have to go about finding sounds that, like, pitch-wise worked or uh, or maybe even opposite? Did you try and play against that music, or did you just kind of ignore it and then play it back and see if it popped through? In the Foley world, we kind of had to do a mixture of both again. It was kind of listen, and my cueing was actually kind of based off of what we thought we could hear in the music. So like if there was a lot of low stuff going on, we tried to stay away from lower hits. We would do higher hits or, you know, stuff like that. I think Paul can probably uh, elaborate on the the Lonesome Flats one. Again, that was the toughest one because I think they changed the pitch, right, Paul? The the mm-hmm. They completely changed the key once we got to the final. Wow. So we didn't have the final for a lot of stuff. We had the songs, but we didn't have like necessarily the final keys for everything. Oh, okay. That's interesting. 
So the the Lonesome Flats is the country music land. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film yet, uh, the trolls go from land to land. Each land is a different style of music. So there's uh, classical music land, country music land. The main characters are pop trolls, so they are in pop music land. So Lonesome Flats is the country music area. I'm Queen Poppy. What's your name? Name's Hickory. Branch, this is Hickory. Hickory, this is Branch. Enough with the formalities. Let's go. Uh, this is Mr. Dinkles, by the way. <laughs> I said, let's skedaddle. Yeah. Go get him, And there's a chase sequence where uh, a horse-like troll is pulling a sled that's just being dragged along the ground. So your first instinct might be to play that sled up because it's visually sliding across the gritty ground. But you can't really do that if you want the music to punch through. So how did you kind of tackle that? <laughs> Um, that was a question where I walked into Paul's office with my hands on my head and went, I don't know what we do. <laughs> um, and, and what we ended up doing really was just exaggerating the, the curves of the door, you know, like the dirt that went away because that was really the only thing that was going to cut. Um, and Paul had already cut, you know, a lot of the sliding of the door to see if it would even work. That tickles. It was it was a challenge, that was for sure. <laughs> what were you re-recording? Were you doing dialogue or sound effects, Paul? Um, I was the sound effects re-recording mixer. And then any sort of sound vocal design, I would do in pre-production mm -hmm. or, in, in, yeah. you know, in editorial. So how did you go about uh, weaving the sounds in and out, and how long did that take you to do on the mix stage? Well, that was the great thing about this project. Like I was telling you, I had this really cool experience of doing a couple weeks of pre-design. It was in that period that I got a shorthand with the directors on how to get, you know, this world that they were creating. But then once I started, you know, the final sound editorial and design, it was a lot of mixing and designing at the same time. So like Jesse was saying, we didn't have the the final keys of a lot of the songs, but we did have the final rhythm. So something I learned a lot working on video game cinematics is to pay attention to the, the beats per minute. And that would really help me know where to nudge some of these percussive sounds. So in the case of Lonesome Flats, when the sled is bumping up and down, and I know anything that Jesse and I do for sliding is not gonna make it through, I need to prepare the best bumps possible because they act like a member of the orchestra, really, they're percussion. So not only am I picking and choosing those to not step on dialogue, to not step on vocals that are interesting or cool, I'm also shifting those bumps or whatever it might be in that moment to be in a musical place. So it doesn't necessarily have to be on the BPM grid, but I'm not a real musician, but you know, I understand the concept of something being just fitting into the musical sound. So while you're on the re-recording stage, you were re-recording with who? I had this amazing experience of getting to work with Scott Milan. And, <laughs> wow. You know, he's a good friend of many friends of mine. I'd never really worked with him, but a very close friend of mine, Scott Janeri, is a personal friend of Scott's and always spoke so highly of him. And obviously, I know his work. I mean, everything he does, especially in the way music and sound design weaves in the movies that he's worked on, has just been amazing. So it was really 
an opportunity and a learning experience. So did he walk into the stage with all of his Oscars or does the... <laughs> I'm sure he's a very humble person. I'm just joking. But he's got an, one of the most incredible resumes you can imagine. So I can imagine you were a little intimidated the day you walked in. I was, but, you know, I have this philosophy about our business and people of a feather are attracted to each other in a way. And I like to be around positive, humble People. I'm not always that way, but that's how, what I think is good for a creative environment. And so, you know, when he walked on the stage, it's just like we were already there because he's one of those people who agrees with me, you know, about integrity, uh, you know, in our jobs. So how did you two first start working together? I met Jesse for the first time when we were working at Sound Deluxe, and she was working on Book of Life. And... Um, you know, and I just remembered her busting her butt being a first assistant there. <laughs> and and I just, it just stuck in my head. And then we crossed paths over years and uh, she became, you know, one of those people at Warner Brothers. So when I came to Warner Brothers, I looked around and, you know, for somebody who could fulfill, wear the many hats that Jesse does. And she's one of those people. So, you know, I am... For better or for worse, one of those hyphenates who does a lot of different things, and Jesse's one of those as well. I remember I, we were doing It Too fully with Catherine, and I remember she goes, do you know Paul Hackner? Yeah, I know Paul. Paul's great. She's like, I think you guys would be great working together. <laughs> I was like, oh, like me too. I think so too, because this was actually the first film we actually worked on together. Um, and hopefully the first of many. Uh, it was such a fun experience. And, and because both of us wear so many hats, like nerding out all the time is basically what happened. <laughs> That's great to hear a story about how you remembered her busting her butt when she was an assistant. Because that's one of those things that we always try and tell people is that, uh, you know, if you bust your butt, uh, it might not get you a job in a week, but people remember that down the road. And, you know, you always got to be uh, giving it your all because that pays off in the end. Yeah. I mean, the last day of your job is the most important day of your job. How you wrap things up is going to determine so much to your future. So, I mean, I always just try to remember that. Yeah, I've found that very true. It's like you could start off so well, and if it just snowballs downhill, that's all that they're going to remember. So you have to just make sure that last day is, is the best day. <laughs> <laughs> very good advice. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's 100% yeah. true. Um, Paul, is there any sound effects moment in Trolls that really uh, stuck out for you as something that you thought worked really well and you're really proud of? Gosh, I mean, I... I love psychedelia. So, you know, I, one of the pre-designed moments I worked on was an early version of the jazz attack. <laughs> and that's when... That's just a great phrase, the jazz attack. <laughs> or smooth jazz attack, sorry. So for those of you who don't know, the movie has this moment where there are these bounty hunters who are on the periphery of the main music styles. And one of them is smooth jazz. And he looks like you know, a typical soprano sax player f from, you know, the 90s playing smooth jazz. And when I was working on the pre-design for that, um, 
session, I was just like, I looked at it and I watched it over and over again. I'm like, what am I going to do here? <laughs> so, you know, basically, and I kind of use this philosophy throughout the whole film. It's just like, I saw the jazz attack. I saw the sort of all the psychedelic squirreling colors and everything. And I just went, okay, this needs synth and it needs all sorts of sounds that are not in the world of, j of smooth jazz. So I just went deep diving into, you know, every virtual synth I had. I rented Roland synths and, and it was really all sort of inspired by sort of the weirdness of like sort of anime and early 80s kind of cheese ball synth thing, you know, which, you know, I grew up on. You hear something? Look at that guy's chest hair. Bobby? I can't feel my face. It's, it's like I'm being paralyzed by a So, I mean, the jazz attack was really fun. That was one moment that I really enjoyed. I mean, the other moments were creating sounds for Barb's tour bus and the little sort of flying animals around there. You know, once again, we had this interesting dichotomy that we had to resolve. This is technically a family film, so it's like it's supposed to be fun and exciting and not scary, but also it's a film that, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, really dealt with um, difficult issues about inclusivity and treating people fairly and, you know, understanding that we live in a world that's diverse. And, and so, you know, Barb's um, sort of, you know, sort of frustration was not she was a bad person but she just you know she wanted rock and roll and so her uh, tour bus and the little animals that flew around needed to be somewhat scary and I really enjoyed making those uh, you know I used Harley Davidson sounds and it really just kind of beefed it up a lot but funny enough one of the things that really cut through in the end for the sound of those were the Foley because it was wings and we were also trying to serve the music. You mentioned that there's the two levels of not being too scary for the little kids, but there's also the separate levels of there's things happening that the kids will find funny and then things f happening that the parents will find funny. For instance, my four-year-old daughter has no idea what the history of smooth jazz is, you know? So like when this guy comes out of nowhere with the smooth jazz flute and starts playing, the sounds that you put in make it hilarious for her, even though she doesn't understand the kind of musical history of that type of music. And same with yodeling. I don't even think she'd ever heard yodeling before. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, what is it? Focus by Hocus Pocus. Is that the, that's the song? I think that they start singing at one point, but, um, and also like there's moments in the film that are referencing other films, like the scene that you just talked about where Barb's tour bus is going by. It has a lot of kind of callback to uh, the Mad Max Fury Road that came out a few years ago, which, you know, my daughter's seen four times because I let her watch whatever she wants. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, the kids haven't seen that movie, so they're, they're not getting that second level of stuff that you're referencing, but it just works because it's so, uh, it, it's one 
cohesive thing, even though there's these separate things peeling off of it. It was really well done, I thought. Now, some of that's the director, but a lot of that is uh, you guys pulling it off so that it does work on both levels. Yeah, actually, my favorite sound in the movie is probably the sound of the zipper for Barb's bus. Mm -hmm. And it's featured in the first reel. What excites me so much about that is it references one of my favorite moments in any film ever, which is Totoro's bus and the sound of that opening, which is actually, that the sound I did has very little sonically to do with the what they used in Totoro, but it was heavily influenced by Miyazaki's sort of approach to just humor and life, and it had, I, I just love it. And you know, the original sound in Totoro is a very simple synth sound, you know, it, you could probably hear that same sound in a million animes. But to me, it was just, I mean, one of the best moments in one of the best movies ever made. So when I got to do my own take on the Totoro bus, it was just special for me. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And Jesse, did you have a favorite moment for this film? Oh man, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> there's so, it's, at least in the Foley realm, there was so much creatively that was so cool but i think i mean my favorite character in the movie is debbie by far there you go there you go calm down who's a good the little bat <laughs> <laughs> and it was so fun to like create like her fluff and when she gets all glittered up after poppy gets her hands on her like her sound had to change and like we use different like crinkly things to make it sound like she's hard and glitter. And she, that was really fun. And oh, what other, there were so many The it was really fun to explore the biker bug wings. Cause we tried probably 10 different things on those wings to make them cut and get it through the music and to work. Yeah, they have to cut through uh, Crazy Train, right? That, yeah. Like, it's a huge metal song Well, Crazy Train. We got these wings that got to cut through it. Crazy Train and then the song at the end when they're coming into the arena. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it was tough. And we actually ended up using um, Katie Rose's vocals. That's what it was. You know, like, we, we modified it and, and recorded it in a specific way. But, it like, that's what ended up being. After all of the things we tried, <laughs> that's what worked. So that was all done vocally, the yeah. wings. Wow, that's cool. I didn't realize that when I was watching it. It didn't stick out to me as that. It's the sort of fluttering sound. Yeah, I don't even know how they did it. But yeah, it was amazing. fun. Yeah, it certainly works. It was really fun. And, and there's a lot of vocal stuff because the, the directors are, love vocal sounds. And it, it makes things funnier and less scary. And, and so mm -hmm. there's definitely a lot of that in the Foley, too. So we've got a lot of our Foley artist personality in there. <laughs> That's a really good hint to do it vocally to make it less scary. I hadn't thought about that before, but that makes perfect sense. It adds like yeah. a comedic layer that's not obviously funny, mm -hmm. I find. You know, it, with like the bubbles popping when they land is vocals. It's again, it's it's our Foley artist's vocals. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just it was the only thing that worked. And when uh, Cooper poops out a uh, birthday cake, birthday cake, <laughs> it's the, it's one of the directors going. Fah, fah, fah. <laughs> if you need me to reenact that, I'll go closer to the mic. Fah, fah, fah. <laughs> That's all he did. 
happy birthday. And, and it, was it was the only thing that, that worked that was funny and not scary or gross. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking with us today. This is really awesome. As I mentioned, uh, my kids love the film and I loved it as well because it's rare that uh, we got in these times, uh, hopefully people are not listening to this in five years and not knowing what we're talking about, but uh, during the lockdown that we're going through right now, this movie provided my family with a moment of pure joy and togetherness that uh, we really needed. And uh, I'm thankful to you guys for providing that with the uh, piece, the role that you played in it. So thank you very much, and thanks for talking to us today. And uh, we look forward to whatever projects you guys are working on next. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Tim. Really, uh, this was great. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 